Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Smith Weekly Uranium Summit, a special event in which we have two highly sought after guests that are real proven veterans of the uranium business. Before we get into the discussions today, I wanted to cover a few administrative things for folks. Uh, first off, this event is for the enjoyment of our readers, followers, and the people who are going to watch this video. Uh, Smith Weekly is not trying to sell a newsletter or a report here, guys. This is a straight up conversation with some industry experts uh, that have been around for a long time. And uh, so it's a purely educational uh, presentation and event. And uh, every, everything that we're discussing here is simply the opinion of the, uh, the participants, nothing more. Uh, if you guys like what we've done here, uh, Smith Weekly, of course, always appreciates folks who, who may donate to our research to help further our work. As most folks know, most of our stuff that we do is free and, and is donation based. So we hope you like it. <clears throat> and then lastly, we hope you're in a comfortable position uh, at your chair and you can sit back and enjoy the event. So with that, I just want to check with everybody, make sure our participants are on the line. Uh, John Borjoff, are you there? Yes, I am, Andrew. And Dustin, uh, Dustin, join us from London. Uh, Dustin, are you there? Yes, I am, Andrew. Okay, well, good to have both of you, and thanks for taking the time. I know you guys are both very busy uh, with your work uh, in the business, so I, I'll try not to take too much of the time here. Um, anyway, you guys know each other quite well. Um, and, and with that, uh, what I'd like to do just here, I'd like to have, if Dustin would, um, I'd like to have him introduce John, and then we'll go from John and have, have John introduce Dustin. So Dustin, take it away for a moment. Okay, thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, yeah, John is a true veteran of the uranium uh, industry. You know, having started out in a university in Western Australia, focused on geology, uh, after he had spent some time in Vietnam with the Australian Army, which was a, an immediate link between us two, but in uh, you know 1975, he joined Uranerts Australia, and uh, you know eventually became one of their senior geologists and headed up their activities in uh, Australia and the Asian region. Um, he uh, in 1992, when they decided to uh, exit the uranium business, um, he made a, I think a very uh, wise decision and acquired their database which I know that invested tens of millions in, a, in developing and uh, had a, his own consulting group for a really kind of a brief period. But then in 1994, founded uh, Paladin Resources, or excuse me, I think it was 1993 anyway, uh, a while ago. And, uh, you know, again, that was a period of, uh, you know, kind of a struggle, but uh, then made the decision to purchase the Langer Heinrich project in 2002 for a very modest amount. And that proved to be, I think, a, uh, a brilliant stroke, uh, which it eventually formed the initial uh, uh, production project for Paladin. Uh, you know, I met, I met John uh, in 2004, where I, I joined them to provide marketing uh, uh, support. And again, we worked together for uh, well over a decade uh, as the Langer Heinrich mine was developed and then Kalakira. And Paladin became a very large player in the uranium business, producing, you know, 8 million pounds per year. Uh, we both left in 2015. 
Uh, John uh, went to uh, Deep Yellow in uh, October of 16, where he's been. So I think that gives, you know, he's a 45-year veteran of the uranium business, kind of coming up on the technical side, but then going into executive management. So uh, we had a bit of a different career path, but, uh, you know, both the decades uh, in the business. Uh, very good. I appreciate that introduction. And uh, John, John is a is a great guy to uh, to have around uh, for this cycle. Um, and, you know, John, John, does, John doesn't get out a lot. He doesn't go out uh, and do a lot of things. He's hard to find, but he's out there focused on the ground doing work all the time. But he's, he's not out there. You don't see him at all these conferences. You don't see him around that often because he's got his head down and he's doing the work. And which is which is really interesting. And, and of course, very appreciative um, in the sector there. So with with that, I appreciate that uh, introduction, Dustin. Now, John, would you handle uh, Dustin for us? I certainly will, and uh, I haven't got the 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 amount of detail uh, that the, the, uh, Dustin has of me, but I, I certainly uh, one of the big remark remarkable things about uh, Dustin's uh, uranium experience is that he was I mean the U.S. was one of the greatest producers of uranium. Uh, in the sort of 50s, 60s, into the 70s. And uh, it went through technological change from open pit to ISL, as it was called then. And um, and in that whole period, there were remarkable people that, that were really foundation for the, for, for the industry. And, um, and, and famously... Um, uh, he became involved in a very innovative sales uh, group with um, what was his name, uh, Dustin uh, Be uh, Benton. Yes, Warren Benton at Nuexco. Yeah, and uh, and this was really sort of forward stuff. People been sort of uh, taking the the norms out of uh, uh, selling and acquiring uranium, and uh, shook a lot of traditional. Uh, thinking on a uh, a business that had a uh, had a, only had a ten year or so a commercial experience in terms of buying and selling this 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 product that only became uh, used for fuel for electricity generation or really in uh, post mid sixties before that it had of course other uses built around secrecy and uh, and military and uh, some of those players that were in that in that period uh, took those secrecies into the commercial side, and I believe it's one of the reasons why there's so much sort of um, commercial in confidence deals done. They're not as transparent as in other commodities, and uh, but that's that's another story. But the the um, uh, Dustin, of course. Was in the was in the in the navy uh, and and got uh, his sort of nuclear sort of interest developed from from there and um, and I regard uh, Dustin as as one of the yes a true veteran but a a, a wide experience in understanding uh, the the sort of market side but also as he was close to a lot of those companies that were producing 
at that time um, uh, in, uh, understands and understood the the sort of issues that miners have and uh, and and the way in which product can go into the drum and how difficult that can be and then uh, the, the the next process in in terms of uh, getting it into into the uh, uh, to the utilities so I I knew of Dustin before we actually uh, met and um, uh, from people that were uh, common to us both and um, and it was one of the reasons why he why I uh, got in touch with him and we'll talk a bit later why uh, Dustin was such an important part of the Paladin uh, side because um, of what hadn't happened in a, in a large scale in the uranium industry where uh, all the all the players that were uh, in in the sort of 80s were just dominant dominant majors um, and there was very few sort of private companies or small publicly listed companies that wanted uh, to to emulate some of the things that the majors are doing and uh, and on that uh, there were, there had to be a whole lot of education in a in a in a space in the market uh, a financial market that nobody understood and uh, they may understand how you produce it but very few could understand how it's sold and, uh, and and particularly if you came to bank finance which was another another issue so I I consider Dustin a, a friend a, a great colleague and uh, and one which uh, we still keep in touch and um, but his his knowledge of the of the utilities worldwide is is, is fabulous and uh, and he's a good guy to have around. Right, I I, uh, I, I second that. Uh, I've had some time talking with Dustin as well and, and getting to know his business and I can tell you his resume is uh, extensive, not just what we have here on the presentation that people are looking at. Uh, an extensive depth uh, of the industry. Uh, is absolutely impressive, and his his knowledge of the fuel cycle is completely probably the most extensive that I've I've heard. Um, Dustin's knowledge there is incredible, top shelf, and uh, so really, if if there's anybody who wants to know about the business uh, in this regard, uh, fuel cycle and, and the utility side and that stuff, uh, Dustin really is a, a one stop shop. He's really really impressive on that. So. We'll leave, we'll leave it there. Uh, Dustin, hold your hold your comments on that. Uh, we'll uh, we'll get back to you for just a moment. But uh, Dustin Dustin lives uh, spends some of his time when he's not traveling to conferences and so forth. He spends some of his time there in in uh, Colorado, and John, of course, is in Australia. Um, and of course, you know when John's not there, he's he's probably over in Africa, uh, running around looking for value and doing some things. So John's in and out, but he makes his home in Australia there. And of course, Dustin, uh, I think Dustin tries to get some time in the States when he can, but he travels a lot. And which brings me to my next question. Uh, Dustin, you're in London um, right now as we're on this call. So what, what are you doing in London? Well, very briefly, Andrew, uh, uh, I'm the chief commercial officer for a new entity called Yellow Cake PLC. And this has been in the works now for more than a year. 
and if you think of it along the lines of a UPC type business model, in other words, uh, we're in the process of uh, doing our final roadshow over the next couple of weeks um, for an IPO, but uh, we'll be buying, assuming the IPO is successful, 8 million pounds directly from uh, Kazatom Prom, which is the world's largest uh, uranium producer. And we've already set the price of that material. But uh, what we're really looking at is, is, again, kind of a preemptive strike where that 8 million pounds could have found itself into the, the uh, spot market this year. But we'll be taking it in one uh, major transaction and holding it for an extended period. And again, uh, like UPC, we'll be selling uh, shares in the company so the investors uh, can get the, uh, the uplift uh, from the uranium price, which we think will be improving in the very near term. But uh, the intent is to, to buy and hold. In other words, uh, we're not going to sell that inventory, uh, so it'll be held off the market. And in a presentation made by a senior member of Kazatom Prom at the World Nuclear Fuel Market earlier uh, last week, he said basically this creates a, a new customer and, and very large customer because we also, under our supply agreement with uh, Kazatom Prom, have a nine year option for each year to buy up to $100 million worth of uh, Kazakh production at that time. Uh, it's an option on the side of uh, in favor of yellow cake, so we can buy part of that, all of that. Um, so again, the intent is to uh, you know create an investment vehicle, which uh, is different. It doesn't have the kind of risk structure that say a a junior miner would have. Uh, you know, there's no permitting risk, development risk, financing risk. Um, it is a pure play on the on the commodity. Not to say it's the only only investment to make, but uh, but anyway, yeah, we're very optimistic. We've had very positive feedback uh, from pre-marketing, and so uh, we should know in the next uh, two or three weeks if uh, we will be successful. Okay, no, that sounds that sounds interesting, and it'll have a another question there that'll come up uh, a little bit later in the uh, presentation here about about this these these funds that are holding uh, physical uranium uh, and how that's going to impact uh, the cycle going forward. So we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Well, I appreciate the introductions, guys, and, and good to know where you guys are at right now. Um, so let's let's move in here to the next part. Uh, we've got some brief discussion items I want to go through before we get to uh, questions. Um, so I wanted to start here, and, and this, this goes to both of you guys uh, here on this screen here we have uh i wanted to talk about just briefly how how the sentiment uh during the last cycle compares to today and i guess we'll, we'll go back to john on that how, how does it how does it look today in terms of the sentiment right now versus last cycle and also do, do you guys feel like there is an exhaustion in regards to where we at? Where we're at today on the supply side? Is there is an as an exhaustion occurred in terms of the supply and and more or less the end of the bear cycle? Right. Thanks, Andrew. Well, I, I'm I'm a sort of got a, a somewhat contrarian 
view of 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 the market and and when you when you look at it and what's happened in the last uh 6 years especially post fukushima and all of the sort of contributing factors that have um uh, sort of confused if you like who you know who who are uh, going to be the players who is going to uh, pull out uh, there's been a huge amount of disruption uh, people are studying their strategies in terms of uh, uh, major companies thinking of withdrawing uh, some companies faced you know, financial collapse and uh, and I think the the price they 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 exposed weaknesses that were already there, I guess, and uh, and we can talk about the Paladin one uh, uh, as well. So everybody's looking for the upside, but nobody wants to put their hand in their pocket in uh, in the downside. So nobody can see the the uh, the upside really, as is in a boom. Nobody can see the downside, or very few. Five percent can see the downside. Ninety-five percent see. You know, a boom is continuing, and and the reverse applies. So, the 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 issue is that every time uh, sort of a, a a major company makes a a move, and irrelevant whether it's a good one or not in terms of affecting supply, all of the sycophantic juniors go out on their uh, um, investors and they say, oh, look what X company has done. This is now the, the, the turning of the, of the tide and this and that's going to happen. And, and truth somewhere gets lost in amongst all the hype and, the, uh, and that sort of sheer be believing that you know, uranium must, must um, uh, sort of improve. I think uh, the, the upside for uranium is phenomenal. I think there are uh, factors complicating supply uh, uh, very much. I think there are industry commentators, and some of them are voices in with the utilities that are, are coming out with um, with sort of numbers, inventories, uh, future supply outlooks that uh, need very little new supply until 2028. Some of it. And uh, and and others are saying the turnaround will be in in uh, 2022-2023, where maybe some uh, structural shortages will be will be um, uh, confronted. And so that's the that's the range. And and if sentiment truly has changes, there won't be that spread of opinion. It'll all start to congest toward wherever. Uh, um, that sort of new sort of uh, revelation is so. Um, the I think the there are a lot of good things that are, are meaning that sentiment is changing. Um, Dustin said that you know whether it's a year or for me I, I've got a a time frame that's maybe a bit longer than others, and um, and and my strategy is built to to take advantage of that, um, and. Exhaustion, well, the exhaustion is that on on paper, on simplistic uh, look, you, you you say that uh, supply is coming down continually, 
there's uh, demand is going up, and um, and it still doesn't seem to have hit a a a, a, a brick wall. And I like opaqueness because opaqueness means that others don't see where where opportunity lies. But I don't think there's a there's a there's a clear tunnel yet in terms of um, uh, you know there's a, there's the, 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 the real catalyst has come, but there are many little signs that are in combination contributing to that uh, the fact that um, you know there are troubles. And then there are opportunities, and yellow cake is one of those that is uh, indicating that. Okay, so John. John, one one question, one more question for you, John, real quick on the sentiment side. How does the public today versus back when the last during the last cycle? Does everybody hate nuclear more or less today as they did back then? Is, is it is it a similar situation as far as the public view? Well, I think whether whether the public like uranium nuclear or don't like nuclear is 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 almost an irrelevancy. And I say that that the uh, the 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 first great grand nuclear period from seventy one to say two thousand uh, was done in a backdrop of a cold war. Everybody was frightened, worried, and yet in it, the inevitability of sort of needing this base load, new baseload power it proved more expensive than coal, and uh, but uh, it 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 happened, and and I think the same applied in the sort of 2005 to 2011 period. Uh, the 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 antis were there. People think they you know that uh, if there's um, these people bleating fear and uh, and Opposition that that seems to have some profound effect on uh, on uh, on the nuclear business worldwide. Yes, in in Germany, that sentiment is 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 been there for a very long time, and they've always been sort of weak nuclear participants. But uh, sentiment hasn't changed that much. I think I think you still get your sort of forty percent antis in some countries, fifty five percent. Some are pro seventy percent. And it just varies. Uh, right, right, absolutely. Uh, switching over there, Dustin, what's your take on on what we just discussed? Yeah, I agree with John. I mean, you know, obviously, anyone who's been in the business for a long time, we've seen the ebb and flow of, uh, let's say, sentiment in general. Uh, I think the uplift this time will be a bit different. I think uh, certainly on the investment community side, they all got excited, you know, 04, 05, 06. Um, there were four to 500 junior companies that were uh, claiming that they were going to develop mines. Um, obviously, outside of Kazakhstan, Paladin was the only successful company. And so I think, uh, you know, there the, the let's talking just on the investment company side. There, there was a learning curve that a lot of the investors went up, uh, which uh, proved or perhaps revealed to them that this is a difficult business. And uh, there were a lot of companies that never made it. Um, and as John says, as, as now we're starting to sense uh, uh, some change in the wind, there's a number of companies jumping up, uh, claiming they're ready to go. 
but I think there's still that skepticism. You know, do they have all their permits? And and we'll get into it eventually here. Sure. You know, do they have the right people? Without the people, it's just nothing but idle discussion in my mind. But yeah, regarding the market, uh, I know John is a bit more circumspect. Uh, I, I'm seeing some things going on. Again, the, the long-term market really is what kind of masked the situation post Fukushima because producers were still delivering at prices well above the spot. And keep in mind, this business uh, runs on term contracts. Uh, each right. year, there, and when you really look at the volumes in the spot market, it's averaged just under 50 million pounds a year over the last 10 years. And less than 20 of that is acquired by the utilities. So it's only, you know, between 10 and 15 percent of global uranium requirements is transacted by, let's say, the, the primary players. And the rest of it are the financial guys, the traders, the brokers, uh, the investment groups that, you know, create that what we call churn. And so, you know, to me, the key is when do the utilities uh, come back in to sign the longer term contracts? They've not been doing that because every time they look at the market and let's say starting in 2020, they see prices significantly above the current spot. And by that, I mean $40 plus. And they just have not been uh, motivated because they didn't see the supply cutbacks. And I think, you know, an important thing are the, the, the bigger producers, uh, you know, putting mines on care and maintenance. And that's really, again, sending that message. Uh, on exhaustion, I guess you're kind of referring to mines uh, that have finally, you know, uh, reached the end of their life. I mean, I guess the, the big one's Ranger. Uh, you know, there was going to be three deeps. There was, you know, all kinds of things that might extend its life. Uh, those aren't even discussed anymore. And I think, you know, John, I think, knows more about this. But I, I believe they're supposed to be out of there by 2026. And so they'll really halt any processing by 2021. And so it's really gone. The big issue now is Rossing. If the market doesn't improve, there won't be economic support for a mine like Rossing, another large historic producer. So we are, you know, the Rabbit Lake mine in Canada is pretty well done. So I, th I think this is starting to seep into the market. And, and that's what I, you know, exhaustion from that standpoint is taking on, you know, reality. So, you know, right. at least that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, no, that, that sounds good. And uh, yeah, exhaustion too on the on the investor side. Uh, uh, I think at this point, exhaustion is, is pretty much pretty much hit from the look of things from an investor standpoint as well. So, so that's good. That's that's good stuff. So now moving on with some stuff that we just discussed. Uh, the concern for talent. We touched on that. Um, you guys know a lot better than I do that uh, there are there's a significant lack of talent in the industry and I, I wanted I wanted you guys to touch on that from both a publicly listed company standpoint and also real talented people that are actually in the industry uh, people that have knowledge of the fuel cycle and people that, that can do the things that Dustin has done and, and the stuff that John has done. I think there's a real concern for that. So John, can you can you touch on the talent and the lack of and, and so forth for us? Yes. Um, look, I think when you look at the talent and 
and the lack of it. And I, what I mean by talent in a, uh, you know, to get a complicated uh, sort of industry uh, going, you don't need just one engineer that knows about uranium. Um, to get an airline going, you don't, you don't need, you know, you need more than just one pilot. You need a whole system. You need a whole understanding, and your whole a whole uh, interactivity of all a whole lot of skills that have to fit in to a corporate ethos. So when you look at from Chernobyl and the 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 uranium sort of devastation in terms of uh, uh, companies uh, uh, going bankrupt, companies rationalising, uh, people leaving the industry. Um, the only place where people didn't leave the industry was actually in the back end, in the nuclear reactor side, in the fuel. But in the front end, in the mining side and the exploration side, this was absolutely devastated. And uh, so you know, post-1990s, there was hardly anyone coming into the industry, young people. And, uh, and those that were um, in their peak at that time, in the sort of 50 year old, they didn't exist by the by the turn of the century. And so you have a whole bracket of expertise that was basically lost. And not only just that, but whole databases, uh, academia, where uh, almost every university had, uh, you know, a nuclear department and particularly a uranium uh, sort of uh, research in terms of all bodies, in terms of all sorts of things. So that degradation meant that when the the the, 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 the next cycle came around, which was the, the let's say the the Asian sort of uh, lead boom or China, um, it was really apparent that there was hardly anybody that knew what they were talking about in terms of running these 400 companies. They were just learning on the trot. The the they'd read their 101 uranium book on something and put out a lot of these uh, fascinating statistics which only uranium has to offer and people would be sort of impressed but really they had no fundamental knowledge of uh, what it took to how to work in the uranium world how the care you need to take stakeholders and and a whole set of responsibilities and uh, uh, technical as well. And, and clearly that's shown out by the 400 companies that promised the world. And it was only Paladin in, the, in, that, in that sector, in the, in the, public, in the uh, listed companies, emerging producers, that effectively became a large uh, capacity producer. So come now the next cycle, there's a bit more um, uh, sort of um, expertise around, still very much, and uh, not, a, not a lot of it is blooded in a corporate sense in terms of building a, a mine, having a brand that, that can impress governments, that can impress the IAEA in terms of your responsibilities, and all of that understanding of what, what it means to, uh, to participate in the sort of global supply family. And this is structurally a huge problem. In, uh, in in companies today, so much so that I believe that utilities still count deposits as production. 
the whole thing for me is I look at future supply through the lens of capability and who's going to get those deposits uh, going. And when you appreciate that 60% of the efforts to get a mine going from 2007, five onwards, when Paladin started, only Paladin was the only company uh, uh, of the two of its projects reached nameplate. So there's a there's a there's a flaw there, and, and nobody's taking any notice of it. And uh, particularly the UXCs, trade tech or trade tech to a lesser degree, where they just think uh, here it is, here's the deposit, and we'll just uh, you know it'll just produce. And they're getting lower quality, so you need higher quality people to manage them. So yes, there is a problem with expertise. So, so with that, uh, John, one follow-up question. There's not any little Borjoff anytime soon that will be jumping into this industry? Well, look, I, I, uh, I, wish, I wish there were because um, I'm, uh, I, I get asked by my board, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, who's going to succeed me. And, um, and, and it's not that that's, I mean, nobody's uh, irreplaceable, but you, you really have to then uh, get an expert in this bit of it or that bit of it, but that sort of overview and understanding supply and getting an appreciation where the opportunities lie there uh, and that more general network, you have to get the skill sets of two or three people and combine that into a management unit. I'm not saying I work as a, as a single sort of uh, post, but there are not many people around uh, and, and more, Dustin can more answer that objectively. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just uh, always looking at that I, I want good people, but I find them very difficult to find. Right, right. Uh, well, well, John, keep, keep working on the kids, John. Uh, Dustin, what do you think? Well, I certainly would, uh, would support John's comments across the board on experience, talent. I think what we saw... In, in the last uplift, I know certainly in the United States, there was a bunch of 75 and 80 year old geologists that had worked back in the 60s and 70s that, uh, you know, were, were available to, uh, to do some work, uh, you know, during that period. But now, uh, as John said, we had a, a long march when the price was depressed, nobody was hiring anybody, and certainly nobody had money to cultivate um, junior people. So I think it's a big problem. And I try to tell the utilities that, that keep in mind as these companies come in and, and talk up their projects, that's fine. Um, but the utilities need yellow cake in the can. You know, there's a different strategy you have to use in, in discussing uh, your company with a utility versus say a, a potential investor. And, and I think that's uh, going to become a, a huge problem. I know when some of the companies have looked for uh, replacements at the highest management levels, the, uh, the list is extremely short. And I think it will be getting less as we move forward. And again, what I, what I see is uh, it's difficult for executives to come in even from other mining uh, sectors and they just say, oh, well, I mean, I understand this and therefore I can just transfer that to uranium. As John said, this is a whole different commodity. It's the most regulated mineral commodity in the world. You've got the, as he said, the IAEA, you've got your local. I mean, it's just a complex 
uh, situation, I think a lot of them then give up. They go, I just can't, you know, can't move this forward. So when one looks at the need for new production, uh, it's going to be tough, I think, um, you know, to get the right kind of technical operational, you know, you run down the list. Yeah, some of the areas may be finance and accounting. Uh, you don't have to be a uranium expert, but in a lot of the operational uh, areas, there's no question that, uh, you know, it's, it's a different, uh, different situation. So anyway, I see that as a very looming uh, challenge. Let's put it that way. Right, right. And, you, you know, you got a lot of issues, whether it's uh, the local culture, uh, speaking, speaking the various languages, wherever you're at. It's, it's certainly not a place where you can sit in a, at an armchair at a desk and get something done. You have to have a whole system of expertise. Absolutely. I agree. Well, Dustin, continue to uh, work on the young people, including those in your own family. And, and hopefully there'll be some some hope for the future talent there uh, <clears throat> on the supply demand side here at the bottom, I'm going to skip that because we already kind of discussed that and we've got more questions related to that later. Uh, <clears throat> so I want to go back to, I'm going to stick with Dustin here for just a moment. Um, Dustin, you do, you do consulting for a number of publicly listed and private companies in the space. What, what strategies have you seen that would create value for these companies and what what strategies have you seen some strategies that just aren't working yeah well obviously i have to be fairly careful here but um yeah i've kind of designed my client list and and you know it includes bannerman energy fuels in the united states and up until february also berkeley with their proposed salamanca project you know, each uh, each company is in a different ge you know geographic region. Uh, they're in a different, uh, I guess, uh, place in their progression as a company. And so I think uh, you know strategies have to be developed for you know there there's no one strategy that the you know fits all. You know, uh, a Bannerman. You know, they're very early. They've been around though for you know ten years. Have done a lot of work evaluating their project. It's, it's a bit more uh, costly than some others, and they realize that. And so, you know, they're, uh, I think, doing what's appropriate for the, the current state of the Atango project. Uh, they don't have a big staff because uh, the market hasn't called for, you know, production out of, you know, a project of that size. And, uh, you know, kind of in that cost, uh, cost category. Um, Berkeley obviously is a bit different. They've been around for quite a while. And what really happened there was the geologists, uh, you know, discovered the new uh, deposit, which really changed the economics of the company. Yeah, I was just out there a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, they have some very uh, interesting uh, uh, results. They uh, are looking to uh, initiate construction. They've raised money from the Omani Sovereign Wealth Fund. They have a couple of contracts in place. So they're in a different part of the, let's say, of the industry than, say, a Bannerman is at this point. And I think, you know, they're uh, trying to make the decision to finally pull the trigger on construction. And I think with the, the improvement in the market, that's likely to move ahead fairly soon, recognizing there's always challenges. 
And then energy fuels, you know, they actually have in place production capacity. They're in production. They have the conventional uh, mine mill uh, component through the White Mesa mill, the only operating conventional uranium mill in the United States. And I think only one of three that still exist, maybe four. Uh, and they also have two ISR projects, one in Texas and one in Wyoming. So they have a diversified uh, production you know, capability. Um, so they're a little different on their strategy. You know, theirs is more focused on uh, getting some contracts fairly near term to keep things uh, uh, producing. Um, so it's hard to say, well, is one strategy better than the other? Uh, you know, a, a better market would help everyone. But, you know, they will come come to market, uh, you know, based upon, you know, the, strat the, the status of their ability to produce. Right, right. I, uh, with all of these companies, if you look out from a from a uh, macro standpoint, you know, they're all at different stages along the along the uh, the life cycle, really, of, of, of these types of businesses. Of course, some of these have been built over many, many, many years. Uh, so there's there's the underlying strategies for now. There's the overall uh, game plan to, to grow a company from a a drill a drill hole in the ground to a producing uh, company who's distributing uh, cans of yellow cake right to the uh, right to the ports. John, with with that in mind, strategies and characteristics. The first two points there. What what do you see with your past experience of success there? What do you see are some good strategies and characteristics of a company? uh like 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 what you did at paladin um look firstly just to touch on a little bit on 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 the strategies to create value i think uh where opportunity lies is is where few people are and um and most of the companies that are around and um in that sort of uh hopeful category with their sort of uh, signature deposit of which they're putting uh, all sorts of polish on it and trying to get it developed uh, or trying to get it ready for development. What it does say is that there's extreme crowding, cr crowding of hype, crowding to be differentiated in amongst uh, uh, probably about 12 or 15 companies and there's no way these are going to all uh, come together and there'll be some you know some real heartache in amongst all this lot because they they're going to rush they will get contracts too sooner they will uh, prepare the road for other people when the price really does uh, uh, come in so you've got to stage how how you enter into the supply business. Junior companies that dream of seven million pounds per year, uh, well, enough said, I won't uh, say any more here. But so what, what uh, I think uh, the strategies are is to assess what, your, what the climate is, what the environment is, where those opportunities are, what is seriously missing in the supply uh, sort of companies and and how do you fill that vacuum? 
and very few companies are thinking about this. They're not thinking about consolidation. They're not thinking about you know um, uh, uh, what's needed when major companies are exiting, and they're just very much in, inward looking, and 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 really, I still don't understand the dynamic of the whole whole changing uh, uh, supply. In terms of characteristic of what makes a good company, I think you in a uranium company is is big, deep wide knowledge of nuclear and and uranium itself so deep that you can give confidence to the stakeholders to the communities and that you 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 have a brand that is like stainless steel against rust against people that always are deriding the business Always trying to put fear in, uh, in 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 your shareholders, and and then a culture of of you know that trust. Your commitment is your word, and your word is you'll do it. And I think that's that's what Paladin is, and this is what I'm trying to engender in in Deep Yellow, and and also to be a company that demonstrably is able to produce in the category that it is after. It has a proven track record. It's not promoters or hopefuls, and which is a plenty of room for all that, because the, the, the time for exiting, uh, like in the previous period, and selling for high high premium is gone. There's nobody there. So these, these, these companies are even more vulnerable, and expertise, again, will come down to that word, of, of building and that um, that people that are associated with you commercially believe that you will deliver uh, uh, on on a on a on a commitment uh, which is so important in the nuclear industry. Right, right. I, I agree. Uh, <clears throat> you need you need all the uh, all the all the personalities need to show up to the party. Uh, so that that makes sense. Uh, so moving on uh, back to uh, back to Dustin here. Um, so, so over the last two years, you've had various supply cuts. You've had uh, new funds, trading houses, uh, you know, stockpiling funds have, have been set up, and 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 things are starting to get stockpiled, and and new fundraises have happened for more uh, physical uranium uh, stockpiling, and you've had the shutdowns from the Cameco and the Kazata Prom. Uh, Dustin, to you, what what should a retail investor look for? now what 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 straw should they look for now what's 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 the next thing to come in your view uh market wise i think uh, if we don't see the price improve we'll see more shutdowns uh, and it won't just be guys let's say at the margin um you know it's going to be very you know large uh, production sources and you know i can pick on a raw saying uh, that there aren't a lot of them left let's put it that way and, and that's one thing I know John has touched on is consolidation. You know, this business now has, a, you can count them almost on one hand, a number of, of uh, you know, large producers. And they have their own strategy. I mean, BHP will kind of forever produce uranium as a byproduct, but they're not going to expand that, you know, outside of an Olympic dam. Um, Cameco, you know, has made it very clear that, uh, They've pulled in their horns, you know, they're and, and people seemingly don't listen when they when they talk. 
but they said they're not spending any money on any of their other projects, like in Australia. Yeah, they've moved them to kind of, they had initiated permitting, so they might as well kind of finish that up. Um, and, you know, the replacement for cigar, you know, it runs out of ore in 2028, and it's a discrete ore body. It's not like, say, a Lang or Heinrich, where you can do more drilling, and if you, you know, kind of know what you're doing, you discover more pounds. Uh, they have to develop like a millennium, and they're not putting any money in. So I think, you know, the investors uh, can take a look at that. And, and then on top of the juniors, a lot of them, uh, you know, are out telling a, a story of how they're going to be in production. I saw one today and I won't name names of, you know, they haven't even done a feasibility study and they're going to be in production in 2021. And I mean, I'm sorry, but that just doesn't work. Um, a lot of them require huge capital. Uh, some of them in the Athabasca, which are going to take you know, probably eight to 10 years, even if they started today uh, with a much higher market. You know, they, re they require more than a billion dollars in initial capital, which is a little hard to raise these days. So, you know, the other thing is, uh, unfortunately, the market, everyone watches the spot price. And as I said, that's a, a bit of a tail of the dog. But if that, uh, you know, starts to firm, then I think, uh, you know, rather than a, a false start, we've seen like in November, the price went up a bit based upon MacArthur announced shutdown. Uh, you know, Cameco had not initiated their buying uh, component of that in the spot market. So the price sagged. Um, I think, you know, probably second half of this year, uh, they should keep their eyes on. Again, the spot price will be one indicator. But also is, is hopefully there's term contracts signed, which we do have some utilities, I think, seriously looking at that term market starting in 2020. And we'll have to just swallow hard on prices north of $40. And when I think that starts to get reported, uh, we'll see a real change in sentiment in the market. Okay. Yeah, great, great. Uh, so, so on the next, the last question there, uh, 2019, 2020, 2021. People, people. Some of these folks are impatient and you know, they can barely hold a trade over a weekend or, or at least two years. Uh, so they get impatient, they get tired. Um, for you guys, in your view, just give me, give me a year for for a person who is is going to get in there and and look at some of these publicly listed companies to uh, to play this cycle. Honestly, right now, uh, my, my opinion, I'll give my opinion here. I, I think we're at a 2019, a 2020 type situation for real move. Uh, John, do you have a year roughly? And Dustin, do you have a year? John, let's start with you. Look, I, I'm, because of the strategy that I have, I have to sort of, uh, uh, I've got my opinion in the sort of, you know, 2020, 2021, but I have to act as if, you know, the prices may may move in 12 months time. And, and my window is um, uh, the period which there is despondency in the in the business and uh, and the and opportunity uh, arises. But I, you know, if 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 you believe uh, the WNA, and they say uh, that the uh, supply 
there'll be a supply shortage post-2023. And if then that supply shortage post-2023, in terms of people wanting to seek uh, um, term contracts, is not really coming into effect by 2024-25, where, where that, that, that deficit is truly met, and if you say that uh, the price response is two to three years before the shortage because the term contracts start touching into that period, then you, you, you're looking at 2020, 2021. And, uh, and the, the, the whole thing for me is that there is so much misunderstanding. It's miserable how little the utilities know and appreciate what uh, what supply is, and how much supply, and that uh, supply uh, for for dozens of years came out of five main uh, producers, and then you're going to get this whole ragtag of you know 20 new producers, which in itself presents risk when you get uh, you know people that haven't got expertise, they're running companies, they've got dreams, they're doing this, they're over committing in terms of how much their little ore bodies can produce, and you have another risk. But that they, these problems won't be recognised by utilities until they happen. And um, so there'll be exacerbation. But I'm, I'm a long way around saying, you know, end of the decade, uh, where I, I see, you know, real serious business <laughs> happening. I can see, you know, for instance, Cameco seriously under, mis, underestimated what, what the issues were. Having uh, you know put out a marker out there, sort of shutting down Macarthur for, for ten months, and saying this, and thinking that within this time frame, uh, you know the the uh, utilities will shake in their in their pants, and uh, and everything would turn, and then they'd fire up Macarthur. No, it's not simple. It's complicated. It's it's opaque, and it's darn difficult. And um, and and there's been drastic announcements. Some of them good. Some of them not so good. Uh, half of Kaz Adamprom's announcements are, uh, are smokes and mirrors. They haven't been real, real shutbacks like uh, like Cameco has done. And um, but look at the spot price, and you will not see the event of any of those things happening. There's a bit of a kick now, but when Cameco did the cutback, it went to $25. Little orgasmic change, and then back it down again. It came. So. Where is the fear? Where is that real catalyst? Is yet a long way away, I believe. Right, right. Uh, Dustin, I was going to ask you, uh, what do you got? Give give the retail investor a year. My my view on it. Yeah, I don't. Sure. Uh, I'm I'm a little earlier than than John on this. Um, I think what we're going to see in the spot market is uh, if yellow cake is successful and we take that 8 million pounds out of what could have been in the market, uh, there are also some other funds that are in New, you know, in New York that are looking to start to buy some physical material. Uh, and, but a big thing will be Cameco buying. And I think they've you know, made it pretty clear they're not going to come in the market and buy little dribs and drabs. You know, they're going to buy big, big volumes and uh, apparently internally they're talking about MacArthur won't come back on till the price is 40 and that's evidenced by new term contracts 
kind of at that price level. So I think we're starting to see, you know, a number of factors that will come into the spot market. Uh, there's a lot of talk about massive oversupplies from the, the Russians. Uh, I was told recently that that's not the case, that they uh, remain short uh, starting in 2020. So there's not a lot of material that, that they're introducing into the market. Uh, the Kazakhs gave uh, some more uh, production cut numbers uh, in Monterey, which I think, you know, they were willing to fess up that, you know, trying to slow that, uh, that uh, com country down has been difficult. But now I think they've gotten, uh, you know, gotten a hold of it a bit better. So, you know, all of that put together, I would be surprised if the price isn't better at the end of the year. You know, let's talk on December 31st, you know, into next year. So I'm kind of, you know, late 18, certainly into 19, we could start to see a, a better market. That doesn't mean it's $100, but I think it's certainly going to be uh, be up from 23 and hopefully have a bit of uh, support under it. Because I agree with John, these things are announced. Everybody kind of does, you know, gets a little excited and it drops back down. But just to talk about the utilities, which we haven't touched on yet, they've made it very clear they react to the market. In other words, you'd like to think they anticipate, but they really don't. And the market will, quote, tell them when to start contracting. And so far that hasn't happened. So anyway, we'll have to wait and see. Great, great. So let me uh, let me change gears here. We're going to we're going to do a few uh, a few questions from uh, folks who submitted them. Uh, so I want to say thank you to Steve C, Bill R, Jared W, Paul M, Levi B, Mike P, Todd A and Dave V for your questions. Thank you. Uh, this one this one to Dustin. Um, <clears throat> tell us, Dustin, on we're going to go to underfeeding. Uh, with with underfeed supply, do you see it as a cyclical, a cyclical situation underfeeding? Does it have to do with the overall big cycle of, of the uranium uranium cycle from from up up to down? And then, what would you, in your estimation, have for a number uh, of underfeed supply that is actually entering the spot market? Okay, happy to comment on that. Obviously, it comes up frequently. Underfeeding has been taking place for decades. I came across a paper recently in my one of my dusty old files from 25 years ago talking about the effect of underfeeding on the market. So it's not and nothing new. And again, it's an operational strategy that the uh, enrichers used and, and certainly with the centrifuge a technology now, which all of the enrichment is based on that. They need to keep the centrifuges spinning. Uh, I've been told that if, the, if a Russian centrifuge is off for 24 hours, it gets out of spec. So as uh, we got into the post-Fukushima period, um, what we saw was for, first of all, the Japanese cut back on their not only uh, uranium purchases, but also enrichment services. So the, the enrichers, um, in order to keep their plants uh, spinning, let's put it that way, um, went to more underfeeding. And what that means is they just apply more of their service, which are separative work units, to a given volume of uranium 
to produce their output, which is enriched uranium product, which is what they're contracted to deliver to the utilities. But contractually, they've set a certain amount of uranium that needs to be delivered, uh, you know, in order to produce that EUP. But what they do again is they put more SWU in the process and they're able to divert some percentage of the natural uranium feed. And so that's what's really been occurring. Uh, now, again, the enrichment side, they've stopped building centrifuges. They've canceled some expansions. Uh, they're not replacing centrifuges as they wear out. So we'll, we will see some balance coming back. And the Japanese are starting to take deliveries because they do have to build fuel uh, for their restarts, no matter how slow those might be. Anyway, the number that I've seen recently is between six and eight million pounds of uranium uh, for Western uh, enrichers that's being generated out of underfeeding. Now, uh, one, one conclusion is that's all coming into the spot market. That's not true. Uh, again, the enrichers are in business to sell their product or service. And what that, and what that means is enrichers like Urenco, uh, for example, just did a recent long-term EUP deal with the Koreans. And so they're not only bringing their enrichment service to the, the utility, they're bringing the uranium feed component, which they basically got at almost no cost, so they can be highly competitive with their EUP. Uh, I've heard that maybe, you know, a million to two million pounds is being sold into the spot market by the enrichers, and that's just to cover some of their costs. But, uh, you know, it's really, you know, once the market begins to pick up again, uh, you'll see less of a, the underfeeding side. And whatever the Russians are doing, uh, my view is consider it goes into the black hole and it's not coming out uh, until, say, they need to fuel those new reactors they just are contracted for in China or India or in South Africa. Um, you know, so again, it's, it's, it's going into their stockpile. So I think that, you know, yes, underfeeding is an issue. It will be around for a while. Um, and it may always be around. I mean, it's a way to balance uh, the enrichment uh, production versus uh, the uranium market. But that's okay. basically what I'm seeing on underfeeding. Okay, so so let me let me just continue with just a couple more on this issue. In a rising price environment, say a uranium price of sixty dollars a pound, does the underfeed does the potential for underfeed supply does it increase? Or does it stay the same regardless of, of price? Theoretically, yeah, Randy, theoretically it increases. If there's excess capacity in the SWU side, um, you know, they want to save some of that uranium and, and therefore monetize it. But I think what we're seeing is, again, the capacity, the, the, the SWU machines are all operating. So, you know, if we right. move forward and there's a better balance, I don't think... Just so you know, Urenco builds SWU capacity after it's been put under contract effectively. So they don't uh, anticipate new markets, they react. And the only thing that got them was Fukushima because the Japanese backed out of their SWU commitments. So it's, so it's not anticipation, it's uh, you know, after they get it under contract. 
Okay. Okay. And then with, with that, the underfeed supply, the numbers that you gave us, uh, do you see that continuing for the foreseeable two, three, five years? Uh, could, but I think it'll start to work its way down. Again, they won't replace uh, enrichment capacity as the uh, centrifuges reach the end of their useful life. They're not building new capacity. There was a lot of discussion about expansions and all of that. So I think, yeah, it will start to work its way down. And so that one or two million pounds might become a million. I mean, it, it becomes certainly less of an issue. Let's put it that way. Okay, that, that sounds good. Lastly, give us give me a single source that, that retail folks could go to for this type of information that is relatively credible. Is it, is it Orenco? Where, where should they go? Uh, like many things in this business, uh, there's no Google site you go to. They can, uh, John referenced the WNA, they put out a, a market study every two years, and there is a, a secondary supply section in there that talks about you know one of the issues is underfeeding and it's available at a modest cost but that's about it unless they subscribe to one of the consultant studies like trade tech puts out an annual enrichment uh, study that goes into sure. this issue but but there is no credible no cost source okay okay that, that's great thanks thanks for that dustin uh john Switching over to you for a question here. Uh, during your time at Paladin, John, give give us a few people, uh, if you can, uh, at Paladin and outside the company that were, were key people to delivering your view. Well, if you take it in 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 sort of two or three parts, uh, in the period from '98. Uh, to 2002 and three, there was nobody. It, I, I was, it was, I was just on my own, believed my own pitch, uh, and um, uh, the industry was 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 dead. I mean, uh, yep. you could pick up a, a two billion dollar property at that stage for fifteen thousand dollars, like I did at Langer Heinry. So there were there were people. Before, uh, when I used to work, when I worked for the West German uh, a group that discovered Key Lake, and uh, and they had a, a, a great influence on on myself both on the technical and commercial areas, and the uh, and then moving moving on, um, Dustin was a was a was a great uh, help and a confidant, and we we uh, we strategized strategized a lot in uh, you know where where Paladin what it could make up how it could integrate a supply side marketing arm and all of those things which didn't invest to sort of eventuate but at least we 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 talked about it and some of the benefits uh, of this and how it could work differently um, on on uh, the other side the there have been engineers uh, a guy called uh, Daryl Butcher, who we innovated uh, new innovation in Langer Heinrich and Kayla Kera, which, uh, I mean, not only do we develop two mines, but these mines have got completely different processes that uh, have, set, have set standards for future uh, production. Um, the, 
chairman was a was was uh, great with his with his sort of uh, chair steward stewardship. Gillian Swaby, who's worked with me for 20 years, with her black and white view on life. So it was a whole combination of people that got together that were disparate, uh, independent, had their own thinking, and but amongst all of these people, there were no yes men or women, and that I think is vital. Right, right. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for that. Dustin, going back to you, you and John worked together for a long time, almost probably a decade uh, from what I see here. What what conflicts did you and John have and how did you both benefit from them? Uh, well, keep in mind, you know, we ha were contemporaneous veterans of the business. So I think we saw a lot of the same issues uh, in a similar light. Um, and I, you know, there were no, you know, deep seated conflicts. Um, and I think that's where John did a really good job of bringing together, you know, a group of in management that, yeah, had their own opinions. Um, but like he said, uh, you know, weren't any yes men, but we were all trying to get to kind of the same objective. And so, you know, would we go back and forth on pricing? You know, John, I think you might... Uh, you know, uh, agree that ceiling prices, you know, the utilities, if you do a market price contract long term, uh, they'll give you a floor price to kind of protect you. Uh, at one point, they were like $30 or less, so they weren't worth much. But they also want a ceiling price, which protects them on the upside. Now, this has been a, a, a commercial term that's been around for literally decades. And uh, and I think that's one breath of fresh air John brought was he goes, wait a minute, there aren't any other commodities where the producer will put a lid on what the value is. And so, you know, we kind of, you know, we went not around and round, but, you know, it was a point of discussion of, well, that's what the utilities want. And again, John brought again that and John, you know, just so you know, and we'll talk about it some other time. Um, I think the view of the utilities as just customers, which is just, um, is kind of now permeating the business. It's not a gentleman's club. It's not your buddies. You might play golf with them, but I think it's more of a, hey, there's a lot of different stakeholders and, you know, that's all got to be put into the mix. But yeah, I think, you know, a little bit different view at times of the market. Sometimes he was more optimistic. Sometimes he, you know, less. But yeah, other than that, there was no knockdown dragouts that I can remember. Okay, was there a disagreement between uh, what what brand of wine you guys were going to have, or what uh, what microbrew you're going to have at the uh, the bar after work? No, I left that up to John. He knows the red wines a hell of a lot better than I do. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just to follow up a little bit on what uh, Dustin says, people. Uh, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I can be as sort of hard and as aggressive as the next guy, but I don't believe that uh, creating that sort of tension in a group is necessarily uh, the one that, uh, that that breeds the results. And uh, when that question arose, uh, when you just said it, and I thought, gee, I've never, we've we've always sort of argued our cases but there's never there was never sort of conflict in 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 their longer objectives and thereby everything was geared against that objective and 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 how how to get but 
look, if there was any conflict, uh, it, uh, we wouldn't have survived uh, in that in those tough years where, uh, when when it is tough and when you uh, when you've got weaknesses in your group because of politics or or underlying sort of conflicts, pretty soon it's like rust. It destroys your whole group, and and we certainly went and. We, we were weathered against that and we, we really withstood anything. Um, so conflict wasn't there. There was with some other people, but uh, definitely not between Dustin and I. Oh, good. Okay. Well, well, hey, we're, we're about an hour, hour and 10 minutes in here. We're going to continue and try to try to get through this and, and uh, not take everybody's too much of their day up here. Uh, so back back to uh, to Dustin, a quick question, quick response for you, Dustin. Uh, Cameco and the Canadian Revenue Agency have a transfer pricing dispute. Do you think that has any impact on the market? Um, uh, you could view it that way. Uh, again, there's all kinds of opinions on that dispute, and, and I understand exactly how they put that together with their transfer price, with the, the Swiss company and the like. Um, not knowing anything, I think there'll be a negotiated settlement because this will go on for a protracted period. But what it does, I think, is ties up, not tie up, let's just say it's an issue that certainly Tim Gitzel and Grant Isaac and they all have to, to deal with. And, and is it hindering their, you know, say acquisitions or investment? Uh, could be a little bit. I mean, it's a very big number. I mean, obviously, if it went against them, you know, it, it's a, a big drain on finances. But again, I think it's it's one thing out of many that they're dealing with. And, you know, the IRS settled and, uh, you know, it, it's just something that that's it's kind of ongoing. But I don't think they'll let it go on for another 10 years. Right. OK. No, that sounds good. And uh, John, back over to you. Uh, for those who aren't familiar. Um, explain where Deep Yellow came from and why it was set up. So why are you why are you back with Deep Yellow, John? Well, the there's two reasons for that. First of all, uh, when I was running Paladin, uh, when we were starting to build uh, our mines in 2006, it became clear that we couldn't devote that much time to exploration over the next uh, sort of eight. To 11, 12 years, and, and, it, and which happened to be then uh, true, and I needed an exploration arm that was running independent, but had some sort of association with Paladin. So we helped form Deep Yellow, and uh, and Paladin, or we Paladin uh, formed Deep Yellow. It, uh, it retained a a 20% interest in the company. Sometimes went up to 23, 24. We had a director on that. On that project, on that uh, company, and uh, or we Paladin had, and um, and always uh, Deep Yellow worked around the the main areas. Uh, Deep Yellow worked around the main areas where Paladin was. So I knew the company, I knew the projects. Uh, I had a, and my team had different opinions in terms of how well uh, that that the, that ground they held was being exploited. In fact, tried to joint venture with them, but that that didn't uh, work. And so, when I left um, um, with sort of mutual understanding, left Paladin, 
And uh, after about eight months, I thought, okay, we need to do something. I, I looked at about eight companies that, that uh, for me, uh, which ones would offer the vehicle that I could take and do a, a Paladin Mark II. And it became really obvious that, apart from my familiarity with uh, with Deep Yellow, and I and I knew that there was no sort of uh, strange ghost in the cupboard, um, it also had a very clean register. And uh, one thing you find after the 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 uh, uh, sort of a Fukushima a massive event, you'll find that the share shareholdings of companies. Uh, become compromised as they try to survive, either with private equity taking large, some might say too large a hold and controlling uh, Chinese investors coming in. And um, so Deep Yellow for me fitted two reasons. I had a clean company with a general uh, sort of um, uh, a shareholding and that Paladin had an interest at that time about nine percent, ten percent, which I knew I could take out, and so I effectively had a, a company that I could put at the beginning of the runway, and had all that strip ahead of me to take off, where I believe most of the companies have matured, hadn't taken off, and were already three quarters of the way down the runway and not off the ground. So that's that's simply why, uh, and they had some good ground in Namibia as well. Right. Uh, it's it's clear it's clear that you you know both both yourself and and Dustin. It's not it's clear that you guys aren't back here for the money for this uh, this last cycle. Uh, but John, back continuing with that question, answer this one. This one was interesting. Was the equity performance of Paladin a rare chance, or was it a reasonable expectation of yours to have that outperformance during the last cycle? When the Paladin share price was uh, uh, eight cents, I had a, a complicated, not a complicated, it was a eight step um, uh, event where I predicted share price uh, in the market cap, the events that would create that and uh, on, a, on, a, on a share price. And I got it up to four dollars. And the, uh, uh, and so, I, I really believe that if we got this together, the outcome was assured. There was no question. We were sitting there. We were on our. We were virtually on our own. Um, uh, I felt that against the others, or the Canadians were mostly prospectors. They were just, uh, you know, out there, good-hearted guys going and drilling their heart out, which is which is great, noble, but you know, it doesn't make companies on its own. And uh, so yes, I, I had a. I didn't expect it to go that much. And in fact, uh, yeah, there's very few companies that have replicated that that increase, as you know. But yeah, you know, a third of the way I'd predicted in value. Very well, very well. Uh, so going back here, uh, I'm going to go back to D Dustin here real quick. Dustin, do you believe that companies need to pursue utilities to get contracts and their attention? So do companies need to pursue them? Or can companies build build value and just stand there and wait for people to line up? Uh, I'll try to keep this brief, but this is an area that I, I clearly focus on is, is term contracting, particularly with the utilities. Yeah, I think the build it and they will come 
you know, you really need that relationship with the customers early days. And this was one thing I'll give a, you know, positive shout out to John. Uh, when he and I talked initially, you know, he recognized the importance of marketing in this uh, mineral commodity. The utilities are kind of a strange group. They vary markedly between regions, uh, within regions. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of the current juniors, uh, you know, as, as he said, they've been optimizing, which is good. But then they run up against the wall of term contracts. And I think, you know, we could we could spend quite a bit of time talking about how those are, are put together. But I think you need to engage your customers to know, you know, kind of at this point in a it's a buyer's market. So, you know, you're going to have to listen to everything on their wish list. Uh, hopefully we get into a balanced market and then at some point we'll get into a seller's market. Um, you know, there are various issues that the utilities have to deal with and their procurement has changed. It used to be the nuclear fuel groups were kind of left alone internally to uh, to cover their requirements uh, in the best way possible. But anymore, you've got to go through risk management, treasury, finance, uh, you know, and there's all kinds of internal uh, hurdles for the fuel managers. I have, I've had these discussions recently where that their jobs have become, you know, even as John said, they're yet to really recognize the supply issues that are looming and that'll just add to their list. But yeah, you've got to get out and beat the bushes. You know, you've got to go in and talk to them, let them know what your story is, what your plans are. Because again, they want yellow cake in a can. And for them, there's credibility. You know, will you deliver? They don't care what your share price is. They don't care what your blue sky is. Uh, you know, that's that doesn't put, you know, yellow cake in their their fuel cycle. So so the answer in in big, bold letters is yes. Now, of course, there's degrees to that. You know, do you go to Mumbai every quarter to talk to, you know, the Indian nuclear power corp guys? Well, no, but there's some that are, you know, you, you've got to prioritize. And and so, you know, that's kind of a, a, a long winded answer to, you know, absolutely. You've got to understand your customers. Sure. Uh, and, and with that, uh, continuing with Dustin there. Dustin, what, in your view, what single notable project do you believe will be commissioned first in this new cycle? Well, again, I have to be, you know, I've been fairly careful in choosing my clients, but I think, you know, Salamanca, you know, it, it, it's not massive. It's, you know, three to four million pounds a year. You know, I think, again, with their couple of uh, good term contracts so far, the uh, funding from the Omanis, uh, which doesn't require a lot of term contracts, uh, you know, unlike, say, a bank. And, you know, again, I think the, the proof will be in the pudding if they make the decision even before the end of this year to start construction. But, you know, other than that, and I think John, you know, has his views, uh, probably aren't a lot different. There's not a lot of really viable projects until the price gets up um, you know, pick a number, 50. You know, this whole idea of, well, our cash costs are this. Well, you can't develop any of these projects if all you get is your cash costs or break even. Well, you know, I don't think investors or board directors are going to say, well, yeah, let's go, let's pull the trigger 
at a break even. Uh, that isn't going to happen. This is a risky business, and they've all learned lessons during this last cycle. Um, so you want to have a margin in there. Again, this is a, what I'm trying to tell the utilities. Don't get enamored with, you know, 43101C1 costs. I mean, you know, give me a break. Because they'll say, well, if your costs are 18, I'll give you 20, and you ought to be able to move forward. And, of course, the comeback is, well, I really need 40. So anyway, uh, you know, kind of that's that's what I'm seeing on the project side. There's just not I mean, everybody's looking at acquisitions and there's not a lot of attractive projects uh, in the hopper at this point. But John knows more about that than I do. So. John. Yeah, so, look, I am I'm. Um, I, 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 I see great difficulty of who who's going to who's going to uh, initiate with uh, with a substantial production and um, I, I think Berkeley yes I think it's still got uh, issues I think there's a lot of risk technical uh, or risk in terms of I've always said any country in the EU to have a uranium mine uh, you've got to bump up the, the factor and uh, but there they've got the money, uh, they've got the heart. Um, I think uh, too many people will rush. I, I seriously believe that incentive pricing has to be above sixty dollars, and uh, and everybody uh, this nonsense. Uh, I fully agree with Dustin. This nonsense about you know what my C one costs are. It's the all up cost, and uh, Trade Tech have done a, a wonderful analysis of this. In the uranium space, and uh, and and looked at the whole cost right for C3, and you see where the numbers are coming in. And when you look at you know replacing reserves, uh, what you need, you you need numbers. I believe if people start at forty dollars, I'll wait for that other opportunity, acquisition opportunity, that in the long term, uh, they'll 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 suffer. Uh, right cost. Uh, very very high deposits are, are low grade. You, you, you find you find somebody that's got deposits, and you say, oh, "I'm running out of five, eight open pits, and I'm going to do my 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 uh, uh, operations." Really careful, right. and this is what I'm saying by crowding. Everybody's crowding, so they're competing on a C1. It's about as useless. Race. Uh, I don't know what. And um, it's not a number. It's not a sensible number. It's not any. And uh, uh, you know, Cameco saying it's got, you know, it's cost at twenty dollars or whatever it might be. What are the other costs it's got? Um, they're they're much higher. Uh, uh, Transadamprom saying sixteen dollars. These these are running when you look at all their costs. They're running twenty one to thirty five dollars a pound. Nobody talks about that. It's just the high banner so processing costs. Uh, no, no mining equivalent cost or well field cost. It's a really immature, poor, poor industry that can't afford to, to tell its real cost structures. Right. And, hey, I got I got a question. I got a question for both of you here that goes on uh, with another another separate issue. Just to step out, uh, what you guys were both in Vietnam. 
what what wartime experience did you guys both have? And we'll go we'll go with John first. What what experience did you have during Vietnam, John, that has helped you shape shape and craft your expertise and your business your business uh, likings? Well, I'll preface everything to say that my Vietnam experience was one of the most amazing experiences uh, for me, and it was it was a a changer. It, it brought out the best and the worst. I, I saw people that uh, you can't predict what they're like until you see them under pressure, and uh, and trying to uh, in 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 real life trying to uh, uh, estimate that through pathetic HR sort of uh, uh, um, interviews is is just just doesn't work. I I, I saw what it's like to protect uh, uh, your mate and and they do the same and and I really believe the best thing that I learned is controlling fear so and remember everybody's afraid but just that you could go that extra yard you could do more than what you believed and and, it, it, and when you test it to the fullest extent possible you, you realize who you are, you realize where your strengths are and weaknesses, and uh, and that's what's taken me through uh, my, my corporate experience. Dustin. Uh, yeah, I would certainly, like I said, echo John's comments. Now, I was fortunate enough to be in the, uh, the Navy uh, Officer Corps, and I was not in country. In other words, I was on a ship that was in the, in the combat zone, but what you learn, you know, certainly from my perspective as a 22, 23 year old ensign is, you know, teamwork, uh, as, as John says, you rely on your mates. And that was the other officers, as well as all of the enlisted guys on the ship. Um, try to keep calm under fire. We had officers that couldn't do that. Um, and then there were those that, uh, you know, when the shells started coming in, uh, you know, we're able to kind of maintain that, uh, let's say, more clear vision of, of what needed to be done. But again, it, it's it's that group working together for a goal or an objective, uh, which was crucial in the in the combat zone, even even on board ship. I mean, we did 98 underway replenishments. So you have to come alongside a replenishment ship. Everybody's got to work together to get it done as soon as you can. You know, you run down the list. Um, so anyway, I think that now it was run under, you know, kind of an absolute uh, uh, structure where, you know, the captain's word was what, you know, what you did. But still in all, I think for, you know, as John said, this, you know, has carried me through my career that, uh, you know, kind of a calm under fire, I think, is probably one of the more important lessons that I learned, certainly. Right. Very well. I, I like that. Uh, what for for both of you, Dustin? Back to you for a moment. Uh, what what single greatest mistake did you make during the last uranium nuclear cycle that that you would like to avoid this time? Oh, I think you know John would have his opinions. I think post Fukushima, which was certainly a black swan event, I think we had a uh, a view of the future that you know was based upon the Japanese. Uh, response being much more rapid, 
you know, that this wouldn't last. Even, you know, Gitzelikamiko said, who thought that the effects of Fukushima would last six or seven years? And maybe part of it would be to, you know, cover off with, with uh, you know, term contracts that would provide a bit more support. But, you know, and, and John can comment, uh, you know, we wouldn't have been covered probably this far out. We would have been amongst this group that that's kind of having those contracts drop off because that's that was the nature of the market. And, you know, so I think that was it. It, it was a, you know, an event that who knew, you know, uh, how long this would and, and the depth of it. You know, the fact that Japan would would turn its not turn its back, but certainly back away from nuclear for as long as it has and, you know, has resulted in these market market effects that are still still being felt. So I guess that might be it, I don't, you know, of anything. John? The, the mistake that, that I made um, was built around the objectives we had in terms of getting Paladin in 2006 producing no pounds to in 2012 uh, producing 8 million pounds which was then about 5% of the market and that involved making two operations three expansions and we were continually in development construction mode and we couldn't have achieved that without debt and um, so we had a considerable amount of debt lying uh, with us to get there. We couldn't do it all with equity. And I guess the mistake was that when Fukushima happened, that instead of, like Cameco, believing that this would turn around in three, four years, we should have immediately acted and uh, reduced that debt. And and uh, and that, that, for me, was um, a... A, a big uh, issue. The other one, of course, was I sold no shares until uh, $10, and uh, and I wish I'd sold some uh, more than I had. That's all. Uh, but that's right. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, yeah, I think when you have an, an issue, uh, if you have a, a substantial event like a Fukushima, it's it's uh, it's it's tough. Uh, you can certainly plan for types of things like that, but it's it's one of those events that is very very hard to uh, to be able to recover recover from. It's it's a difficult situation. Uh, but looking at Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, Fukushima, that that spans many decades, and uh, so it's it's a it's an interesting uh, situation that exists with the time frames. Um, well, the other thing I'd like to mention is that having uh, increased the production from 2007 to 2012 to 8 million pounds, uh, we had a constant problem, unlike uh, all the other producers that existed that had flatline production, Cameco's, Ranger, uh, ERA, uh, Rossing. So they, they'd all built their term contracts up to 70% of their production. And uh, because that had evolved over years and it got to that steady state, we were always, we always had to get the nameplate before we actually committed and tried to make uh, term contracts so that we were, we 
didn't have our full quota. Well, I think we got to a maximum of about 40% to our total production. So we were exposed then to 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 spot in a as a direct consequence of uh, the the remarkable achievements we did, and um, and that's when I got a real problem with some of these young companies coming through. They say oh, I'm going to get to a production of of, of X, and you know, you've got to be really careful what you commit in long-term contracts and, and how you commit and, and how much of the production you commit because if you don't deliver, you're lost meat. I mean, you're just, you're not, that trust of delivery is really an important part. So there's many, many factors that uh, that we, you know, we were aware of, we did. And uh, and that event, I mean, I, the, the reason I'm, I'm really... Um, uh, uh, Sort of think about it and I've learned a lot is it wasn't that the event occurred that's that's fair enough I mean it's bad luck but if I'd had you know for thinking back and you know the power of hindsight is to have had a uh, you know a, a disaster management sort of idea to say look if this happens we need to offload in the next 12 months or whatever it is and drop our debt and and some sort of action whereas we we were believing that Oh goodness me! It's going to be you know four years, and we're right. Anyway, right, another right. Story. Uh, so I want to want to switch gears for just a moment here and take a look at uh, something else. So hypothetically, Dustin, this is for you first. Hypothetically, Dustin, if you had a hundred million dollars and you were the CEO of ABC Uranium Company, where where and what would you do with that money? Give us a jurisdiction and tell us what you would do. Would you take Would you take a a mine that was existing and, and try to build it, or would you go greenfields? What, what would you do? Just give us a generalized overview of where you would do it and how you'd spend that money. Yeah, well, first of all, I've not ever been in that uh, position, but a uh, few comments. First of all, jurisdiction. You know, I, I certainly favor the U.S. being a, a an American, but you know, there's a lot of problems. I mean, it took these little ISR projects five, six years to get permits in Wyoming. Um, you know, so I'd probably default a bit to the to the U.S. But, you know, one thing and, and John can, I think, confirm it, uh, Namibia. I mean, I was, uh, I guess, pleasantly surprised. Uh, let's put it that way on the support from the government. And I think the the environment there to, to work, particularly for a mining uh, project, I think it, it was just excellent. Um, Australia, I think it is still a bit tough. I think. Uh, and John can correct me, but, you know, from afar, I still see kind of an underlying anti-uranium nuclear, you know, sentiment there. So I think it's a, it's a bit difficult. Um, I'm not a big fan of going in and trying to fix old mines. And in fact, it's interesting, Cameco under Jerry Grandy, uh, when they'd go into like Kazakhstan, he wanted to build, you know, a Western style facility. So he wouldn't go in and try to fix something that, you know, had lots of uh, legacy issues, I guess. Um, I think you have to have a sprinkling of that blue sky, you know, of, of I've come to appreciate uh, the geologic area. And some of, some of them to me are almost, you know, I don't want to call them magicians, but they're able to find things, do things that, that just continue to amaze me. And I'll give a little shout out to Ed Becker, John. I just have always been impressed with Ed. 
Um, so, you know, probably a mix of things that, uh, but not, you know, I think you need to be able to come to market fairly soon. Um, so that to me focuses maybe more on the ISR projects. If you can find some that are decent, you know, like in Wyoming or, or wherever, but I guess that would be kind of my view. So. Okay. John. Um, I would, I would pick uh, Namibia hands down. Um, yep. The reason is, is uh, uh, we, we came into uh, Namibia in 2003 or through Paladin um, uh, to find the, the ore body. And in 2005, uh, we were building and, uh, and went through all of the process, but it's, you know, you can get, uh, operations going quickly, and um, and then the HUSAB, the Chinese. There's another, uh, you know, three million billion dollars spent, and there's another mining operation there. So uh, and so, I would I would definitely choose Namibia. I think Australia is fraught with uh, problems, uh, and that you know you can build that into your strategy and how you exploit that. Um, uh, Canada is is got huge issues. I don't think any of those companies, apart from two or three big ones, will ever get a, a, an operation going in the Athabasca. It's Cameco, Orano. That's that's the people that are going to be uh, uh, developing there. And um, yeah, in other parts of Africa, well, or uh, South America. I know what it's like to build a, a uranium mine in a non-uranium country. And that was the first one that was done by Paladin in, uh, in 30, 40 years. Nobody's done it before because every other, you know, there's been uranium mines in, 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 uh, in the US. All the jurisdictions are there. They all understand. So you don't have to invent the wheel. Canada the same. Australia the same. Uh, uh, really, uh, the early uh, uranium miners in, in Europe, uh, uh, Kazakhstan. So all these kind, of, all these people that are in countries that haven't got uranium in them, and we've got to teach the the people, the governments, uh, all of the things around. It's a double, double, triple hard uh, uh, job. So yeah, if I had my thing, I'd, I'd, I'd concentrate in there because I know I can get quick reward, and I know uh, um, consumers, utilities are after Namibian product. Uh, in terms of their sort of diversity, and uh, and you can get large scale deposits, you know, production capacities of greater than two two and a half million pounds per annum. John, do you like Botswana? Well, Botswana is, uh, is 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 a great uh, country, uh, better possibly than uh, Namibia, uh, and all it has is the issues of uh, you know not having that uranium experience, but they've had developed a lot of other uranium, a lot of other mines. So their their regulations, their mining act has to then adjust to you know radioactive material. So you've got time delays in that whole process. Uh, and but I like Botswana. Okay. Do. Okay. Uh, moving on here, uh, back to Dustin. Dustin, how 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 do you feel? How disciplined will Will Kazakhstan be in a in a rising uranium price environment? How how disciplined will they be uh, with their with their potential uh, supply? 
Uh, well, you know, certainly remains to be seen. I think they're now gaining fairly noticeable discipline on the downside. And I think what's driving them is their desire to do their IPO because they need to maintain a certain uh, spot price is what they transact all their uranium at. I've heard that's $35. Now, if the market goes to 40 plus, will they, you know, turn the bow of the Titanic and start putting in more well fields? Uh, probably. You know, I think there's going to be a tier of production in that 40 to 50, and it might be MacArthur, it might be more Kazakhstan. Uh, just remains to be seen. I think there was a really interesting presentation in Madrid by uh, Uranium One. And, you know, their view was if prices don't improve, Kazakh production could drop by 40 percent by 2030 because they're not uh, drilling. They're not, uh, you know, doing better definition of their resources. Um, so, you know, and as John said, there's a, a spectrum of production costs. Everybody thinks that, you know, Kazakh production is below $20. Well, there are projects that haven't gone ahead, uh, you know, Zerich, Noya, and in that general area, because they're much higher cost. You know, keep in mind when they move to the new, the new areas of production, they're much deeper, less permeable. Uh, Ten times, I've been told, the amount of acid is required. So, you know, you're, I, I think they've gone after the low-hanging fruit and so the next batch could be $40, $50 costs. So, you know, they're, they're, I think they're becoming much more sensitized to costs as compared to just uh, produce as much as you can, which, again, was a presentation from Ka the Kazatom Prom in Madrid. And they said the, the mindset at the production centers has been almost Soviet. In other words, more and more and more without any view of what it means for the market and i think they've finally got that in hand so you know uh, remains to be seen so okay I'm, I'm rolling up rolling up a few questions into one here more or less to consolidate and and, and keep our time on track here uh so dustin uh with you again um with with yellow cake with the uranium participation with these other unnamed uh funds uh, with Kazata Prom's trading house stockpiling, uh, with all these stockpiling efforts, where, where do you see where these organizations might consider uh, starting to sell? And 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 with that, would it would they be looking at spot, or would they mostly be looking to secure contracts? Well, uh, let me comment upon UPC and Yellow Cake. I think because the business model is fairly similar, uh, at this point, there's no intention to sell. So I think it's now there have been internal discussions of, you know, is there a shortage situation and so a buyer, you know, whoever it is, a big producer or a utility comes in and says, hey, I'll pay you a big premium. I want to buy part of your inventory. Um, you know, would that be considered? Sure. Um, I think some of these other guys, you know, the groups out of New York remains to be seen. They're probably more short term, but I don't think they'll buy big volumes. And, you know, Trading House Kazatom in Zug, um, I, I don't have a good feel yet for how much inventory they may be accumulating. I don't think it's big volumes because if it was, you know, they'd be buying from kind of the mothership. So, you know, will some of it come back into the market? Could, but I don't think it's going to be, 
you know, a flood. I mean, I've heard the logic that the Chinese, when the price gets, you know, up enough, they'll start flooding the market to monetize their uh, profits on inventory. I mean, that's just illogical. That's just fake news. So, so you know, it's going to be a factor, but I don't think it's going to ruin the market. Right, right. And I, I don't think that there's enough, <clears throat> there's not a substantial amount held. I mean, with the, maybe an example of Kazataprom, uh, uh, you know, these other ones don't have substantial supply, in my view, at least not yet. Um, so with, with that, I want to touch on the 232 petition because we, we would really be, uh, you know, we some folks, a lot of people are talking about this 232 stuff. So I, I wanted to just touch on that and, and I'm going to continue with Dustin and then we can get to John's comments on the discussion here. Uh, people want to know what effects the 232 will have. Will the U.S. be, in light of the 232, will the U.S. be one of the better places to have investments? And secondly, what what would the the foreign suppliers, what what impacts on the foreign suppliers would would uh, would happen in your view if if a 232 was actually uh, honored by the Trump administration? Okay, well, very quickly on the 232, I know quite a bit about it because of my relationship with Energy Fuels. Um, the petition has been filed, but the investigation has not been initiated by Commerce, and they may not in initiate. Uh, that, that's what people, I think, need to get a good feel for. If Even if they do, Commerce can come out with its own set of recommendations to the White House, and then the White House can come out with its own set of, of final tariffs or, you know, whatever. So again, the, the, the benchmarks that were submitted were just that. In other words, the producers had to, to present to commerce something. Now, the 25% requirement of uh, ut utilities in the U.S. buying new U.S. production, newly produced, would result in about 10 to 12 million pounds uh, coming out of the U.S. industry, which it hasn't done since the 1980s. So it would take actually several years. That's why I'm not sure they'll they'll come up with the 25%. But anyway, I know Trade Tech has done a pretty uh, comprehensive analysis of it. And the impact on the foreign producers is less than $2 a pound is what they've come up with. Um, you know, there's numbers floating around that U.S. production at the margin would be $100. So it's it kind of almost illogical that you could have a $100 market in the U.S. and some significantly lower uh, non-U.S. market. Um, yeah, if, if it's uh, taken up and moved forward, are assets in the U.S. going to be uh, more valuable? Yes. Will contracts be at marginally higher prices? Yes, theoretically. Um, but again, I think uh, even if it was that 12 million pounds, you know, that that's a couple of, you know, it's less than one MacArthur River. Um, so, you know, it could create a two-tiered market, which has happened before, um, but it's not going to be, you know, Armageddon for, uh, I think, the non-U.S. producers. Right, right. And I just, before John steps in, I just want to say with that, you know, the United States there's just nothing, there's nothing there. You would have to spend a lot of capital and spend yep. a lot of red tape with the central planners and, and all the, all the folks that are in the offices, uh, shining chairs. Uh, it would take a long time to ever have substantial production out of the United States. John, John, what do you have? 
I think it will be a disaster. I think the uh, US uranium has had its day. I believe there's no sustainability in the ore bodies are low rank, uh, used by those people who are produced when they're producing 20,000 tonnes uh, a year. Uh, they're producing now two, uh, 220,000 pounds a quarter, and they have to go to 3 million pounds a quarter to meet that uh, ambit claim that they think they can do. It will, it, it is, it is, they just haven't got the ability to produce. They haven't got the ore bodies that can say, oh, well, we've got 20 years out there. And, uh, and, and that's where I think that, uh, uh, you know, I think it's done the job. I think it's frozen the, the, the market out. Uh, I think it, it creates a, a problem of non-delivery uh, to, and I believe it will be more than $2 if it's a, a privileged market like it was back in the old days. And, and it will be completely different because of the scarcity of product to come out of the U.S. Okay. That's my simple opinion about the 232. It, it was uh, just two people put in this claim, uh, just uh, virtually throwing a rock in the pool and seeing what will happen. And um, and if uh, if it happens, well and good, but it'll be a huge problem going forward for the U.S. producers, and they need a big uh, price incentive to get uh, uh, to incentivize them into production. Well, throwing a, throwing a rock into a into a toxic pool at that. Uh, so I want to move on uh, and and kind of get get wrapped up here. So so the two the two the two exit strategy here that we have. So I and I tie this in because I know that you know for you guys uh, this this cycle here will will probably be your last cycle that you guys will want to participate in. So there's there's an exit strategy for both of you gentlemen to move on and and enjoy other things in life. And so before we get to that, um, I think this is important. Uh, exit strategy is always critical, whether you're in the market or if you're just navigating through life. So in the case of uranium, what are the triggers that would tell you, a retail investor, that we are getting towards the end of the cycle? Dustin. Oh, I think if we start to see the price uh, certainly flatten out or start to weaken, um, you know, some of the reactor programs that are currently uh, very uh, aggressive, and obviously the Chinese, the Middle East, uh, the Indians, uh, you know, if those start to get, uh, you know, let's say reduced substantially, um, you know, it'd be those kind of typical uh, oversupply, like John said, we could have a bunch of, you know, guys decide they're going to create new mines that just don't cut it, uh, but they bring product to the market. Uh, you know, we're, we're clearly not there. You know, we're, we're early, I think, in the cycle. And so, it, 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 but those are the kinds of things I'd, you know, and there's always a black swan. You know, we're asked that with yellow cake. Well, what if there's another Fukushima? Well, then you got big trouble. So, you know, but just general signs, I think, would be weakening demand forecasts and more aggressive supply. Pretty simple. John? I, I believe with the filters to production, 
any shortage will be uh, very difficult to fill and it'll exacerbate uh, the sort of uh, uh, the amount of supply that came in. So you, you've got a much more uh, uh, sort of uh, hope of an extended uh, high price, whatever that high price is, uh, of um, uh, of uranium. Where I'm, where I uh, really have uh, a quiet smile is when uh, I look at how people act on fear, and fear is when you've got a family starving and there's only two two loaves of bread left in the bakery, and uh, and it ain't going to sell for two dollars a loaf, I'll tell you. And it won't sell even for twenty times that. It'll sell for a huge amount. And uh, and so uh, price, if it goes from twenty dollars to fifty, there is a concern out there, and that concern of the buyer is not going to limit his fear to fifty dollars a pound, because other people will come on top of him thinking that they're invading into their space out in the future where their term contracts are needed to be filled. So they'll start competing when uh, utilities, even when the inventories are beyond uh, uh, that, that particular period, just to protect their position. So there's, there is going to be, I think, a much more extended uh, uh, period. Uh, I, I think that any, any board that looks at uh, future production is uh, is not going to, if it's got any sense, when does price uh, sort of uh, become real? When it sort of hits a, a particular point and then in two months comes down again? Uh, in that volatility, how do you get a, a, a high um, uh, uh, price for your, for your uranium? On lithium, people are making you know 50 to 80% rate of return. And uh, in this volatile market, uh, which board is going to sensibly say, "Oh no, I'll do, I'll, I'll, uh, uh, you know, develop this high-risk mine," and um, and some of these companies with market caps of 20 million are looking for one billion of of, of loans uh, or, or funding? Uh, who, who's going to say, "Oh, yeah, we'll do it," and then we'll take a risk and just become, uh, you know, sort of servants, supply slaves? Uh, to the utilities, so there, these all these setbacks in in the end will will cause uh, this this supply side to be really recognised as a slow a slow release uh, issue. Yes, Cameco can come in and expand to obvious areas in Canada. That's a good space. I think Kazadamprom has has had its good day. It went from three thousand tons in two thousand and two three. To 50,000 tons. I'm, I'm talking roughly, uh, and that that rate of growth is over history. They've got to contain that. They've got to hold that sustainably, and they haven't yet. They've got a plateau, and uh, and there's a serious issue now of you know those well fields not participating in growth, but to sustaining the current production. They have those problems happening. So yeah, look, uh, I think the. There's a, there's a long, long thrust uh, to this uh, uh, next thing. Apart from, uh, you know, and I agree with Dustin. I think, I think demand is there, but you never know. You know, countries could change their mind with renewables or whatever that goes on. Uh, but I think we're in a good, good, good space in that regard too. Sure, sure. And I, I, uh, 
just want to make a few comments there on that. So in our in our nuclear energy report that Smith Weekly Research put out, we we talk about trigger trigger points for retail retail and folks that, that are interested to trigger points to sell. So we cover those in addition to what John and Dustin just said, we cover those in our report. So I would encourage uh, listeners to look at our report because uh, there's a lot of key uh, trips, uh, trigger points for selling that's very important uh, in our view. Um, and then with that as well, when it comes to broad market crashes and black swans like Fukushima, we have written additional uh, issues uh, on on those matters, uh, which everybody has asked about. So we have written those. So I'd encourage readers to look into our material there. Um, and then back to John's comments about loaves of bread. I think price discovery will be very interesting going forward. Uh, uh, price discovery is very important. It's just like uh, whether you're in you're in Venezuela, having dollars in your hands, U.S. dollars is is very important. It's a price discovery situation. Uh, here where I'm at in Nicaragua, uh, there's been a, an enormous amount of price discovery with relation to ammunition and firearms just recently. So if, if any of this stuff uh, is a point, uh, the price of uranium and the discovery price is going to be very much higher. So, John, thanks for the, the loaves of bread comment. I like that. Uh, so moving on after the cycle, what are you guys going to do? When this is when this is over, what are you guys going to do? You guys going to retire and enjoy life, take vacations? What's what's your guys's plan? Let's do go back to Dustin. What are you going to do, Dustin, after this cycle? Well, John, I'll probably get a chuckle out of this, but I'll give you the three to five year time horizon. And the reason <laughs> being, I told John that probably what over the last decade at uh, at uh, Paladin. Um, Actually, what's kind of keeping me around is that, uh, you know, as you say, reaching the summit, I think in that time frame, certainly I'm more toward the two to three years, we're going to see an upset in the market and it's going to be, you know, persistent for quite a while. And so, you know, I think this is kind of the the fun time, you know, we've gone through uh, the, the long march. I think we're getting toward the end of it. And, uh, you know, well, I always try to stay engaged, you know, probably, but, uh, you know, just kind of cut back. We already, as John knows, I've always enjoyed uh, vacation times and things like that. So, but yeah, I think, you know, probably get out of the way, assuming there's younger people that come in. I I always believe there's a, a time when you, you know, you're past your use by date to some degree, but. Uh, you know, that, that it's uh, off, uh, off uh, in the distance for a while now. John? Well, my, my sort of uh, plan for what I want to achieve for Deep Yellow and where I think it can go and to straddle that opportunity window for my shareholders, I think no matter when you talk about whether things are going to happen in the next uh, two years or one year or three, uh, if you've got your foot planted on one side of three years and the other side of five, you've absolutely got the period where fabulous things will happen. So I want to stay involved for strategic reasons in that, uh, and uh, and and I, I can uh, play. Uh, Various roles, but the 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 three years of that is going to be to put Deep Yellow into a space that 
nobody occupies at the moment. And uh, and that keeps me very young, uh, keeps me thinking about opportunities that you need to give optionality to your customers out to 2040 and how where, where are those pipeline deposits going to align up so that you offer early production and, and sequencing to demand, not to some sort of regimen uh, because uh, you're, you're, you're really locked into some pre-programmed outcome. So yeah, that's my, my look and I always, I come from a farming background and uh, all the successful farmers I've seen, they've, uh, you know, they go a bit slower, uh, they give it over to the young people, the younger family or whoever it is, but they're always there and they wake up in the morning for a reason relating to what they've built up all their lives and, uh, and to have that veranda in life where you can do those things and enjoy your life and occasional, I'm not a holiday man, I'm a, I have my holidays down on the farm, but uh, for those, whatever they enjoy to give them time to, to do and that's where I'm fitting in. I'm, I'm basically a workaholic, I guess. Well, it's, it's a drive, there's a drive to create value and it's not just to collect a paycheck. Um, no. There's the real, real drive to wake up and go to work and deliver value and there's a real passion, um, and I, I, I have that that sense uh, for this for this uh, business right now for this cycle. And I know you guys have have an extreme passion to keep you guys in the sector for so many years. Uh, so it's quite uh, it's it's quite an achievement. It's it's really impressive what you guys have been able to do uh, over your careers. Um, so it's it's really really great. And there's there's more story to be told and more chapters to come. So. Well, I want to leave it there, gentlemen. Um, I, uh, I want to know, Dustin, real quick, where, where are you going next in the world to where if, if there's someone that might hook up with you at a conference somewhere, where are you going next? And then I'm going to have the same question for John. Well, the, the uh, after my uh, two weeks in London, I actually will be in uh, Detroit, Michigan for the uh, National Girls Volleyball Championships for the 14-year-old uh, granddaughter. Um, the next conference, uh, really, there's one in Washington in July, a one-day conference with the NEI. The big conference will be uh, September in London with uh, World Nuclear, or excuse me, the uh, WNA. And uh, then in October, there's a, I think, uh, around the 20th, there's a, a big conference uh, in Boston. So those will be kind of the, uh, the cities uh, over the next few months. Okay, John? Yes, yeah, so, uh, I'm planning to be in Vancouver in uh, mid-late July on, a, on the uh, Sprott conference there, which is a, a great conference to, to be. It's got uh, about 80, 80 companies selected uh, uh, by by the Sprott Group. Uh, I'm going to New York after that, and um, a big exciting thing that's happening with us is we're going to list on the OTC uh, QB uh, platform, which will give the US real-time direct trading opportunity in Deep Yellow. So we'll be visiting and pushing and promoting that side much more. And, uh, and then in September, I'll be in London um, uh, on the WNA conference and uh, traveling a lot more uh, uh, in the next 12 months, both because of you know just getting uh, uh, deep yellow uh, on notice, 
now that I've got something to talk about, and uh, and also um, investigating some opportunities for expanding the platform. Okay, uh, so with that, you guys you guys uh, safe travels, of course, to all those conferences, and I would encourage folks who are listening and and uh, to this video and and conference here to you know, these guys are some of the most highest quality people in this business, uh, very top shelf. So I would encourage you if you're at these conferences, uh, you know, uh, see if you can hook up with these gentlemen and, and have a conversation. Um, so with that, I want to thank everybody for taking the time. Uh, we hope you had some fun and some gained some great knowledge from Dustin and John here, um, not only on the nuclear industry, but also in life uh, with the wisdom that they can share with us. So we're fortunate to have them here and uh, we appreciate their time. Uh, if you aren't a Smith Weekly reader and haven't joined us for the first time in this uh, presentation, uh, make sure that you at least check us out on our website, uh, smithweekly.com, or of course uh, on Twitter. Our handle on Twitter is at Smith Weekly. On behalf of our guests in Smith Weekly, enjoy the journey ahead and take care. Thank you.